Um, my name is John, if I haven't met you, uh, and I have the joy and privilege of, of pastoring here uh, alongside these other folks, and very grateful that you're here. If I haven't met you and uh, haven't had a chance to hear your story, would love to grab a coffee with you later and just hear a little bit more about why you're here and how you got here. Um, we're in a new series, so the second week in a, in a series in the Gospel of Luke. And last week we kicked off and we started where Jesus is kicking off his public ministry in Luke chapter 4. And he, he does that by talking about this idea of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. So he, it's a part of the Israelite Sabbath calendar. There's, there's a Sabbath day, there's a Sabbath year, and then there's this mega super Sabbath, the year of Jubilee. And Jesus announces it by reading from Isaiah 61. He says that there's good news for the poor, there's forgiveness of debts and recovery of sight for the blind. And it's this dream that, that people took of not only this seven-day, seventh-year, uh, 50th-year celebration, but something that became a cosmic dream for Israel's prophets, that there would be this invitation of rest and this restoration of people and this announcement of freedom that would come to God's people. So Jesus is saying, I, I am, uh, I'm announcing this, and he's also putting himself at the center of it. He says, I'm the anointed one, which means I'm the Messiah. I'm this long-awaited figure who's going to kick this off in your midst. And it's very easy to say all of this. And so the rest of uh, Luke will set up, what does Jesus do that shows that he is going to initiate this jubilee? What will it look like, and how will people respond to this jubilee announcement? So, here's my conundrum. We started it last week. We only have five more weeks till Easter, which is what we're going to. And I've got 18 chapters that I want to cover. And I've been doing research, and there's so many great stories. I want to just talk about them all. But we can't. So we're only going to talk about uh, a few of them. But I just want you to feel my pain. That's my conundrum. That's my cross to bear. But also an invitation for you to read along in the Gospel of Luke as we go through the series. We're not going to be able to go through every story, but there are things that you'll pick up if you go with the lens of this jubilee announcement of Jesus. What is he saying and doing as he goes along? So today, we're, we're going to look at a, a passage. So Luke 4 was what we looked at last week. So Luke 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is going around, and he's doing a lot of miracles. Very specifically, he's healing people physically, and he's casting out demons, and he's raising people from the dead. All fun stuff that I love to talk about. But we're going to zoom ahead today to talk about Luke 7. And I think this is one of the most poignant and beautiful passages in uh, the Gospel of Luke. And there's so much that we could say about it again. But I'm just going to focus myself and us on one question, which is this. What does God want? What does God want? I think this passage has a lot to teach us about what God wants. So let's read together, starting at the end of Luke 7. It says, then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. So Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. So this passage starts off like a, a bad joke, basically. It's like a Pharisee, a sinful woman, and Jesus walk into a bar together, and you could fill in the rest. I'm sure there's lots of good dad jokes that we could tell there. But Luke often does this where he showcases uh, two different people. And he'll, he'll juxtapose them against each other, contrast them with one another, to try to bring out what God wants or how people respond to Jesus. And that's what he's doing here. So we have two characters that we see, a Pharisee and a sinful woman. Now, they're contrasted in a lot of different ways in this passage. One is a man, and one is a woman, which is a very important theme for Luke. He picks up on this quite a bit. So if you're reading through, pick up on what, what women get and men don't get often in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, there's other differences, though. The man, as we'll see, he's named in this story. He's given a name. The woman, no name. The man has lines in this story. He says certain things. The woman never says a word. No voice. The man is at home with his friends. 
The woman is alone and uninvited. The man is the host. The woman is the intruder. So there's all these different differences that come across, these contrasts. But the biggest one that I want to focus on for us is that the man is, is called a Pharisee and the woman is called a sinner. So if you're not familiar, Pharisees had a really specific answer to this question, like, what does God want? And I would say there's really two things that they would say, this is what God wants. He wants us to know the truth and to do what's right. To know what's right and to do what's right. And let me use the book of Deuteronomy to uh, show you how this works. I know you guys are all familiar with the book of Deuteronomy. You read it like every week. But let me just give you a little bit of a synopsis of what's happening in that book. So this would be the scriptures for the Pharisees. So there's three parts to the book. There's a preamble, a short preamble, and then there's a huge section in the middle, which is like the law, the part that you just don't read, right? Or you just pass out two chapters in. And then it ends with this question at the end. So there's three different sections. And the Pharisees would basically do this. They would just highlight this middle section, the law. What's, they wanted to find out what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. In, in biblical language, what makes you righteous? What makes you unrighteous? What makes you a, a person that's a good person in God's family? Or what makes you a person who's cast out of God's family? What makes you clean? What makes you unclean? What gives you honor? What brings you honor? What brings us honor? What brings you? What brings us shame? So this is what they cared about a lot. And the way that they, they um, showed that care and attention to detail is like this. They would take a law that's in the book of, uh, of Deuteronomy. Let's imagine it's this big. And they would put guardrails around it to make sure that you would never, ever break this law. So one of the things in Deuteronomy that it says is that you're supposed to give 10% of your grain, for example, to the, the, uh, to the temple to the priests that are there. But they would say, not only do you need to do that, but you need to make sure that you give 10% of absolutely everything. So if you went to Trout Lake Farmer's Market and you bought like a bundle of milk, mint, sorry, not a bundle of milk. Um, I don't know if they sell bundles of milk there, probably, but not, not like cow's milk. It would be cashew or I don't know what they learned to milk over there. Um, and I don't know if it's called a bundle of mint either, to be honest with you. I have no clue. A gaggle of mint, maybe. Um, but... If you bought a bundle of mint, let's just imagine, what they would say is, okay, that, you need to take that mint and you need to count off every tenth leaf. And every tenth leaf, you need to bring it and take it to the Levite priest, which in this case, to carry the analogy, would have to be Mitch, not me, because he can grow the Levite beard. I am absolutely hopeless in that area. So that's the way that they looked at it. You, you, you take this law and you expand it to make sure that nobody ever breaks this law. So what does God want? He wants us to obey the law. That's what... It's most important to them. Now, the woman, on the other hand, is identified completely opposite. It says she's a sinner. That's how she's identified. So she's done something in public. Everybody knows this. That has caused her to be this kind of person. She, she's condemned. She's unrighteous. She's a bad Israelite. She's unclean. She's a person who should be shamed. This is the contrast that Luke is setting up for us. So let's continue reading. She brought, bought, brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been at some awkward parties before in my life. In fact, my wife would say I'm the person who makes the party awkward quite often. But this is an awkward party. The, the scandal of what's happening and the sensuality of her actions is just off the charts. Um, one, one pastor said it like this. It'd be like if, if, I, if you were here and I was delivering a sermon and someone just came in, set up a pole over here and started pole dancing. 
you'd be like, uh, what's going on? I'd be like, hey, it's Shauna. You guys know Shauna, right? And you'd be like, why do you know Shauna? Why is she here? Okay? That's what it would be like. It's just awkward and not appropriate at all. So the Pharisee sees this, and he says to himself, the man, this man, Jesus, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. So the Pharisee's response is very similar to the people from last week's passage. Basically, his thought process goes like this. If Jesus is a prophet, he would know people's hearts, and he would not let this woman touch him. Therefore, Jesus is letting this woman touch him, and therefore he can't be a prophet. He doesn't act in the way that I would think a prophet should be acting in this case. So he can't be a prophet, in my opinion. Verse 40, so Jesus replied to him, and here's where he uses his name, Simon. He points him out, Simon, I have something to say to you. And the passage is winking at us here. It's starting to wink at us. Because if you, didn't, if you notice, Simon didn't say anything out loud. It said he just said it to himself. And so it's saying to us, oh, Jesus is a prophet. He knows what's in people's hearts. In fact, Simon, he knows what's in your heart. And you're in trouble. That's what it's going to say. So he said, Jesus said, to, or sorry, Simon said to him, say it, teacher. What do you have to say? Say it to me. So Jesus starts with a story. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. A denarii is about a day's wage. So that's about 200 years, or two, two uh, years of wages. And the other 50. So you've got two people. One owes two months of wages. One owes two years of wages. But neither of them could pay it back. So this, this creditor, he graciously forgave both of them. So which of them will love him more? Simon answers, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, Jesus told him. And here the passage isn't winking at us anymore. It's like, you ever get those eye spasms where it's just like, oh, it's just like a rapid fire wink. It's just saying like, this is, Simon is in deep trouble. Because what Jesus is saying, you, you can get the answer right. You can have the right ideas. You can know the answer and you could still miss the entire point of what's going on. Turning to the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Washing someone's feet was a customary honor for people and a way of, of, of cleaning them and preparing them for the meal. And it was often performed by the servant of the house. You didn't wash my feet, but this woman with her tears, she's washed my feet and, and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. A kiss in that culture was a sign of affection and welcome. Come in. I extend myself to you. Simon didn't do that, but the woman hadn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil. In that culture, anointing someone's head with oil was like saying, let's have some joy together. I want to have a good time. You bring joy into my house. I'm preparing myself. I'm excited for this meal that we're about to have. And Simon didn't do that. He said, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. An absolute bomb. So there's so much that's happening in this passage that I want to talk about. But let's go back to our question to keep us on track here. The question that we're asking is, what does God want? What does God want from us? And in in this passage, this part of the passage is deceivingly simple. What God wants from every person is love. And it's not just any kind of love that he wants. It's like Led Zeppelin love. Whole lot of love. Deep, deep love. And that's the, story, the difference between these two characters. Both are forgiven. We'll point that out again later. Both are actually forgiven in the story. But the Pharisee only loves a little. And the woman loves a lot. 
And remember, she has no words in this narrative. She can't communicate it through words. What she does is she communicates with unbelievable clarity through her actions how much she loves Jesus. That it's a love that she extends to him that's willing to be awkward and embarrassing. Like, this is not a love that you want to see on your Instagram reel. It's just messy, embarrassing, all-out love. It's love that's deeply costly. It costs this woman her body as she wipes Jesus, or she, she cries onto his, her, his feet. She wipes with her hair. It also costs her her money. You know, the, the perfume was probably the best thing about her. People now smell dank, but imagine 2,000 years ago in uh, the Middle East. It's a hot place. And this woman, you've got to remember, she's shamed. Everywhere she goes, people know about her that you need to stay, excuse me, you need to stay away. And so she's got this perfume that at least gives off a nice smell for whatever reason. And her whole, maybe her whole life, she's been saying, like, this is how I cover myself up, that I'm okay. People might shame me, but at least I'm going to smell okay when I come around the corner. And instead of put, using it on herself, she uses it on the feet of Jesus, the lowest part. I want you, Jesus, to smell good. I want you to be honored in this place. It costs her a lot. And it's going to cost her even more, because this action is very shameful. And it's going to be even more shameful for her. You can only imagine what the Pharisees' like WhatsApp chat sounds like, okay, as all of this is going on. It's like, you will not believe what's going on at Simon's house right now. And this woman will be even more shamed as she continues on. But she says, that's okay with me. I love you, Jesus. That's the kind of love I have. I'm willing to be shamed. I'm willing to give everything. It's an embodied, life-changing love. Something has happened that has changed her life that she's now willing to show this kind of love to Jesus. And in, in the Bible, this kind of love, this kind of reverence has another name. It's called worship. That she's again saying, she's got no words in this story, but she's saying to us that Jesus is the anointed one. He's the one I give everything for. He is the Messiah. He is God. And there's a real deep irony here because her actions showcase what the words that this Pharisee would pray every day, twice a day, You may know these words. They're from the Shema prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all of your strength. And you know where this is found? Deuteronomy 6. It's the highlight of the first part of Deuteronomy. And this woman is living out that Shema prayer. This is what God wants. This is what he's always wanted, for us to be all in with our love. Now, something has happening here that's super confusing. Remember our diagram here. So we've got the, those three parts of, of Deuteronomy. Now, let's imagine that the top level here, go to the next slide. The top level is the Pharisee's life, and the bottom level is this woman's life, okay? So here's what the Pharisee has been doing his whole life. He's, he's doing great. The law, he's got it all checked out. But when Jesus comes and he says, you love only a little bit. And this woman's life is like this. Thumbs down. She is not doing well in that area, in the big chunk of of the area of the law. And Jesus says, actually, it doesn't matter. Or better yet, I forgive you. And so he says, she loves much. And this kind of formula would be absolutely mind-boggling to the Pharisees and to anyone there. And it should be to us. Because if you're familiar with the Bible, God really does care about us obeying his commands. In fact, Jesus says that in, in John 14. If you love me, you will obey my commands. And so... It feels like it's a little bit unfair to me. This Pharisee's been grinding away his whole life. This woman just had one encounter, and she's showing love. And Jesus is like, you don't love very much, Simon. 
but she does. So what's happening here? What's going on here? Well, to answer that question, let's ask another question, which is always a terrible idea. But let's ask another question. Why, or what is the great sin that this woman has actually done? Like, what's, what's this thing that she's being shamed for? I just want you to take a second and think about that. What has this woman done that's so bad? Okay, you got it in your head? Listen to what Janine Brown, an author and a professor at Bethel Seminary, says. It's commonplace for commentators to assume that she's a prostitute, as if the only sin a Jewish woman of the first century could commit would be a sexual sin. But given that Luke could specify that particular sin, as he does in Luke 15, his less explicit reference here to this woman who is a sinner, not, not saying he's a, she's a prostitute, it should not be pressed further, but she be, should be heard in concert with the other references to sinners in Luke as recipients of Jesus' kingdom ministry. She is saying something very important for us to hear, that we actually have a bias towards this woman. We have a systemic issue towards her that we think right away, most of us probably, that she is a prostitute. And that's a whole different sermon, okay? I asked Mitch if I should include it, and he's like, you probably shouldn't. Uh, it'll go too far off the side. But here's the thing. I do want to point out this book. If, you, if that, this question is something that you want to, to learn more about, I would, I would strongly encourage you to read this book uh, by Carol, Karen Readers, um, A Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Church 2. And uh, this is a great book, um, and I'd love to discuss it more with you. But whatever she's doing, it could be prostitution, it could be something else, it's brought her deep, deep shame. Like, people, everywhere that she goes, people look down on her, just like Simon did. They're treating her that way. And here's the question I want to ask. Here's like a, it's a third level question now. Why would anyone in their right mind do that kind of a job? Where you're going to be publicly shamed. And you've got to remember, this is an honor-shame culture. You're going to be publicly shamed everywhere that you go. And my answer to that would be, who in their right mind would do it? Nobody. No one in their right mind would choose this kind of job. And so whatever it is that she does, she's probably doing it just to make a life. She probably has no other choice. She's just doing it to survive. You know, Jenny was talking about that. People are just trying to survive. And so why in that time and place, this is the question we need to ask, are there women like this? Why does this woman exist? Why are there people who have to resort to these shameful actions, these sinful actions, in order just to survive? And in order to get the answer to that question, we need to go back to what we talked about last week from Luke, excuse me, from Luke 4. If you remember there, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61. So he says, The Spirit of God is on me. I'm here to preach good news to the poor. I'm here to free the oppressed. I'm here to uh, open the eyes of the blind. You know, it's the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I didn't say this last week, but one of the things that Jesus says, one of the lines that he quotes is actually not from Isaiah 61. It's from Isaiah 58. And you guys are like, what? Tell me more. I will. You're welcome. You might be like, that's the biggest Bible nerd thing. But listen, it might be a typo or it might have something very important to say to us today. Let's read Isaiah 58 and see what it says. Here's God speaking to his people. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Seems slightly relevant to the conversation about sin and sinful people, doesn't it? My people, they seek me day after day. They delight to know my ways, like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments, and they delight in the nearness of God. Sounds like two thumbs up so far. This is the kinds of people that they are. Why have we fasted 
my people ask, but you have not seen God. We've denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. And this would be very similar to the heart of, of what was on the heart of the Pharisees and a person like Simon. God, we're following your law. Why have you not noticed? We're, we're, why have you not specifically removed these Roman oppressors on us? Why have you not heard our fasting and our prayer? And here's what God has to say. You call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? You call this spiritual practice and Sabbath? Isn't this the fast that I choose? To break the chains of, the wick- of wickedness. To untie the ropes of the yoke. And here's the verse that Jesus quotes in Luke 4. And to set the oppressed free. And to tear off every yoke. This is what Jesus is referencing. And here's what God is saying to Israel and to us today. You know, it's awesome that you fast. It's awesome that you do spiritual practice. It's awesome that you deny yourself. That's fantastic. Don't stop. But you are not obeying all of the law. You've picked and you've chosen what you're going to obey. You've completely ignored sections about the poor, about the needy, about the oppressed, about the broken. And so people are still in chains. People are still oppressed and they cry out to me. There are still intense debts and burdens among my people. So you, you leaders of Israel, you Pharisees, you Simon, the one who are doing all the right things, you have sinned. There's blood on your hands. Because this is what real obedience would look like. It continues. Is, is real obedience not to share your bread with the hungry? Not to maybe open your house for a meal for someone who might be right in front of you, Simon? To bring the poor and the homeless into your home, like this woman maybe who stands right in front of you. To clothe the naked when you see him, or her. Some commentators say that's the way that he knows that she's a sinner. She came maybe partially clothed. And not to ignore your own flesh and blood. Isn't this what I ask? And this, this last line is especially poignant for Simon. It's saying, Simon, this woman, this sinner in front of you, she is your own flesh and blood. She is your sister, or in other biblical language, she is your neighbor. What does God want? Jesus clarifies. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this passage says, along with many others in the Hebrew scriptures, you have failed at this. You have not loved, so you have sinned. Why do sinful women like this exist in Israel? You know, one answer to this question, and one that we probably think and comes to our minds right away, is that she's made some bad choices. And you know what? I bet you, like each one of us, she has. And in fact, Jesus never says she hasn't. He says she's a sinner. It's clear. But the other reason behind is this one that's shown by this passage. It's that people like Simon have sinned. And they have not loved their neighbor. You know, last week I said this idea of jubilee, this year of release where everybody was, all their debts were forgiven, all the slaves were released, and it was just a year of celebration. It never actually happened, as far as we know in Israel's history. And why? Is it because the poor and the needy and the broken and the widows and the foreigners were like, you know what? We don't need it. Just put it off for another couple years. It's no big deal. No, they were yearning for it to happen. Why did it not happen? It's because people like Simon didn't let it happen. It's because of sin. As Edwin Freeman says in his his great leadership book, it is a failure of nerve. A failure to follow through with what you know you need to do. Or as the Bible calls this, sin. Greed rather than generosity. Oppression rather than freedom. Loving myself rather than loving 
my neighbor. So here's the most astonishing thing to me from this passage. Remember Jesus' words to Simon. He says this, I came into your house, Simon, and you didn't give me water for my feet. You didn't kiss me. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil. In other words, what he's saying is you didn't honor me. You did not welcome me. You weren't anticipating with joy. Instead, what you did is you kept me at arm's length. You shamed me. You made me perform for you. In other words, you have not kept the whole law in general, as we've just seen in Isaiah 58, but also you did not love the Lord your God. Not only have you not loved your neighbor, but you have not loved the Lord your God who stands in your midst. So you have sinned by not welcoming. You have accrued a debt, Simon. You deserve shame. And Deuteronomy is very, very clear about what happens if you shame the Lord your God, if you do not welcome him in your presence. You accrue a debt, which is death. As Isaiah 61 says, it's the year of the Lord's vengeance for you. But today's your lucky day, Simon. Your absolutely lucky day. Because this is what the passage says. You gave me no water for my feet. You didn't host me. But she did. With her tears and with her hair. You gave me no kiss. You didn't welcome me, but she did. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she came and did it for you. The elevated one, the Pharisee, didn't host, even though he probably had the means. He probably could have done it very easily. But this woman, who is lowly, who is nobody, who is a sinner, she came and hosted Jesus at the cost of her body. And by playing the host to Jesus, she is, both, she is doing what the law commands. She is loving God, but she's also doing something else. She's doing exactly what Simon and many of Israel's leaders before him did not do. She's loving her neighbor. She is saving him from his shame by paying his debt and freeing him from his obligation. And this is absolutely stunning to me because I can tell you what I would do. I can tell you what I would do with 100% certainty if I was in her shoes. I would do exactly the opposite. I'd say, you know what, Simon? Screw you. All this, all my life, you've just been shaming me publicly. You and your friends, when you see me, you walk to the other side of the street, you make fun of me, you call me names, you've never given me a chance. So now it's, it's your turn. It's your turn to be shamed. It's your turn to be laughed at, it's your turn to be mocked, it's your turn to feel like what it means to be public garbage. And that is not at all what she does. Instead, she looks at Simon and she says, I, I, I see someone who has shamed me and hurt me, but what I see is someone who's blind. He, he can't see. And I, I remember being like that. What I see when I look at him is someone who's oppressed. He's stuck. He's stuck in his way of thinking. And he's someone who's poor. Maybe not financially, but he's spiritually poor. And I want maybe more than anything else to put Simon in his place, to have my moment in the sun where he stands in the shadow. But what I've re received is this generous, undeserving love, this forgiveness and this grace from God. So instead, I will choose to love God and love my neighbor. True love, sacrificial love, all in love, and I will free my brother from his shame by playing the host. And it's an absolutely beautiful foretaste of the story that's to come, of what Jesus will do just a few chapters later, where he'll do the same thing. He'll go to his death, and there will be people who are laughing and mocking him, and he'll say to them, say to God, they don't know what they're doing. Please forgive them as he shows us this generous love and grace. An absolutely beautiful part of the story. Now here's how the passage ends. 
It says, so Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Absolutely fascinating end to the story. And I think when I come to this story, my expectation is to hear at the end, you know, now go and leave your life of sin, you sinful woman. That's not what Jesus says. We miss the point that she's already been forgiven. Most commentators would say she's already had a previous interaction with Jesus where she's experienced his forgiveness. That's what Jesus says, uh, is that she uh, has loved much. She has been forgiven much in the past. So she loves much. And so she's not earning her salvation here. She's just acting out of the overflow and love of joy that comes from a person who's forgiven. And so Jesus just says to her publicly what she's already experienced. You're forgiven. You're released. You're freed. So go in peace. Enter shalom. This vision, again, of jubilee rising in this story. So what do we need? We need to be forgiven, absolutely. But what does God want? That was the question that, that I said I want to mobilize this, this sermon with. What does forgiveness accomplish? What does faith actually look like? It looks like a great love. This is what God wants. A costly love. An all-in love. An embodied love that extends both to God and to our neighbor. To experience jubilee and enter into shalom. And so the question for us today, I think, is this. How can we learn to love much? If that's what God wants. And I know there's some of us here who have a very similar story to this woman and, and so you feel right away, oh, I've been forgiven so much. I love much. It's very easy for me. And that's awesome. And we need to hear your stories. But I think most of us are much more like Simon, actually, in this story. You know, I think I came into this week, uh, into this passage, thinking that both of these people, there's a story about uh, Simon being, or the woman being forgiven, and Simon not being forgiven. And that's not the case, actually. Both of them are forgiven. Just one of them loves a lot. And one of them does not. He only loves a little. So Jesus loves this woman, but Jesus also loves people like Simon. He loves people like me and people like you. Those of us who are stingy with our love for God and our love for our neighbor. So how can we be people who learn to love a lot? Well, let's go back to Deuteronomy. I know you're all waiting with bated breath about how we're going to go back to Deuteronomy. So remember, there's three parts. There's this preamble, right? The Shema, love God with everything that you have. And there's a middle section of the law. But then there's this final section where Moses gives people a choice. This is Moses' like final speech, okay, right before he dies. And uh, so he gives a choice at the end. He says, I've given you this, you know, the, the whole law. Choose blessing and not curse. Choose life and not death. Be strong and courageous. But then here are some of his last words. When Moses had finished writing down on the scroll every single word of the law, he commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God so that it may remain there as a witness against you. Interesting language. For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you're rebelling against the Lord now while I'm still alive, how much more are you going to rebel after I'm dead? Assemble all your tribal elders and officers before me so that I may speak the words directly to them and call heaven and earth as witnesses against them. For I know that after my death, you will become completely corrupt and turn from the path I've commanded you. Disaster will come to you in the future because you do what is evil in the Lord's sight, angering him with the hands, what your hands have made. First of all, what a speech, right? Last speech, I just think of it like a coach 
You know, we're heading out to play the big game, and he's like, all right, we drew up all the plays on the board, but you guys are not going to execute them. Let's just be honest, okay? You guys are garbage. We're just going to get destroyed by this other team. Okay, everybody hands. You know, that's what it feels like. What a speech for the last one. Um, But here's how it helps us learn to love. There's two, the passage speaks of two witnesses to us. Two things that can guide us into the way of love. Two things that can guide us back to being people who love Jesus with everything that we have. And it's God's word and God's people. God's word and God's people. They can help us to learn to love because they help us learn to see how deep our need for forgiveness is. So we can go to God's word. For those of us who are stingy with our love, go to places like the Sermon on the Mount, which just happens just earlier in Luke's gospel, just read through it. You won't make it through without being like, ah, yeah, I'm not even close. Or go to Galatians 6, one of my favorite passages, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. See if you can get to the end without it being like, yeah, I'm not. I'm not self-controlled. I'm not a person who's a person of peace. Man, I fall short. Allow God's word to minister to you in that way. Or allow people into your life Trusted friends who can come and call you on your stuff. Say, I I think your life is a little bit off in this area. And that's what our member check-ins are all about. If you've ever done one of them before, it's about opening yourself up, just making a time to open yourself up with some trusted friends who can help you see the areas where you're poor, you're blind, you're oppressed. And then follow up those places with confession and repentance, acknowledging that you're off the mark that we all need forgiveness, as Luther said, that the Christian life is just a life of repentance, continually turning ourselves back towards Jesus. And, and why is this the case? It sounds pretty crappy as a life, but it's not because God's a nitpicker. It's not just because God's like, ha, 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 I just want to show you all these areas that you suck. You just make you feel terrible all the time. That's not at all what he's doing. It's because he has a greater vision of your life than you do for your own life. Because he wants you to look like Jesus. And anything that falls short of that, and we all do, he's not going to take it because he has a greater vision for who you are as a person and who we are as a church. That we could be, if we continue in this life of repentance, a group of people who actually look like Jesus, that his light shines out from this place. So that's the first thing, confession and repentance. But here's the second one, and it's a biggie. Moses says to these people, look, let's just be honest. You guys aren't going to choose blessing. You're going to choose curse. You're not going to choose life. You're going to choose death. But there's also a great hope embedded in this passage. Here's what he says. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. This ancient language, which is kind of awkward to us. He's basically saying what the prophets will all say later. That the, the, the problem is not just our choice, our ability to make choice. The problem is deeper, that we've, we're broken people. That we don't just need a little Jesus pick me up, but what we actually need is is surgery. We need new life. And that's the promise on tap here, that someday God will come and he will provide this for us. A way to become new at the level of our heart, at the level, the core level of who we are as people. Because Jesus didn't come, live and die, just so that we could get a little bit better at obeying the law. If the dream is the jubilee dream, as Luke is setting it up, and that the vision of our lives is that we would love God with everything that we have, that we would love our neighbor so much that it would look like we're loving ourselves, then we need something bigger than just a little bit of help. We need a new heart. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. By laying down his life and being resurrected, he, he makes a way for us to follow in that path and become new people by dying and rising. 
to put his very essence within us, his spirit, that we might be a group of people who love with everything we have. And that's the vision of the New Testament and a vision for what the, te- the, the community of God's people looks like. You know, one commentator mentioned something that was really interesting to me that I'd never really thought about. He said this, where is this woman going to go? Where will she go now? The Pharisees obviously don't want her. And she can't go back to the life she was living before. That's the life of sin. She'll just fall back into that again, as we all would. What she needs is the church. She needs a like-minded group of people who say, yeah, I've been forgiven a lot, and now I have a new heart, and so I love a lot. Let's go, Let's go together and be these kinds of people, recreated people, who with new hearts love God and love neighbor and live out this jubilee dream with a Jesus who stands at the center. What if we were that kind of people? What if you were that kind of person? What if I was that kind of person with new hearts and we came together and loved Jesus? What would that look like here? What might that look like for our city? Let's pray to close. God, we thank you for this story. Um, Thank you for the way that this uh, woman, even though she has no name and no words that she teaches us, she guides us into what it means to be a true disciple of you. And so we ask during this time of response that we would reflect on the ways that we have been forgiven by your great love at great cost to you, and that you would um, engender in us a deep love, the Shema love that requires that we love you with all of our heart, all of our strength, all of our mind, with everything that we have, just as this woman has, and that we would learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. So would you extend your grace to us in this time, we pray, and may we find ourselves to be open and receptive to what you have to say. So we invite you here, may you lead and guide and minister to us as we respond in Christ's name. Amen.